What would you say to someone who's suffering because they're a Christian? Uh, What would you say to encourage a believer who's been arrested or who's been attacked by an angry mob because they follow Jesus? Uh, Not only what would you say to them, uh, but how would you pray for them? How would you pray for someone who's been rejected by family and friends because they love Jesus? What would you say to encourage a believer who's missed out on a job promotion or who's been kicked out of uni because they trust in and follow Jesus? That might sound like situations that are miles away from our experience, from your experience, but this is the situation 2 Thessalonians is written into. Uh, What we call 2 Thessalonians is a letter from Paul to a brand new church in Thessalonica. And we know this because it's what it says straight up. So open your Bibles, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 1. Have a listen, verse 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the start of this year, we finished off our series in the book of Acts. And we heard how the gospel first came to Thessalonica. You can find those sermons on our website. Just briefly, Thessalonica is a city in Macedonia. These days it's in Greece. Uh, Paul and his mission team travelled to Macedonia to take the good news of Jesus there. They started in Philippi, uh, that's Acts chapter 16. And then Paul and his companions travel east to Thessalonica. Uh, We're told they preach Christ in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, for three weeks, and a significant number of people believe. So have a listen. I'll put it up on the screen from Acts 17. Uh, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, that's the one in Thessalonica, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So things start going pretty well. The next thing we're told, though, is the Jewish leaders get envious. They recruit a, blo- a mob of blokes itching for a fight, stir up a riot, and Paul and the mission team flee. Uh, they go over to Berea. Uh, the people there are receptive to the gospel. But the opponents from Thessalonica Thessalonica, are so worked up, they are so opposed to the gospel, they head over to Berea and chase Paul out of there too. These opponents are so dead set against the gospel, can you imagine what life must have been like for the believers left in Thessalonica? It wouldn't have been easy to hold on to Jesus, to keep trusting Jesus in the face of this kind of rabid opposition. And it's to this church that Paul wrote two letters. As far as we can tell, First and Second Thessalonians are some of the earliest parts of the New Testament. Uh, last year we went through Galatians. I reckon that's the first letter Paul wrote. It fits into the story of Acts chapter 15. And these letters appear to be written not long after Paul left Thessalonica, so not long after Acts chapter 17. Now there are two letters written to this church, Why have we started with 2 Thessalonians? Well, we actually aren't told which order these letters were written. Uh, When I was at school, 
I was taught that when you write a letter, what you do up the top is you put the date. It would be really lovely if Paul had decided to do that, but that wasn't a convention back then. These days, we think dates and times are really important. You know, you don't go anywhere without your watch. Back in those days, I reckon it might have been lovely, you know, much more relaxed. They weren't so stressed about the date that something was written. The problem is, that means we don't know when these things were written. The reason 1 Thessalonians is called 1, it's not because we know for sure it was written first. It's because... It's longer. That's the logic behind the order of the letters in the New Testament. You may not know this. I'm teaching you at least something today. They're grouped in categories by author and recipient. So they're in a bunch of different groups. And then within each group, it's just longest to shortest. So then how do we work out which order these letters were written? Which one's first, which one's second in order? Well, if you're interested in this kind of thing, what you've got to do is get out your magnifying glass You've got to look for clues as to when the letter was written. With 1 and 2 Thessalonians, there are no deal-breaking clues. It sounds like 2 Thessalonians was written whilst persecution was still hot, and in 1 Thessalonians, it sounds like the persecution has cooled down, and so that might suggest 2 Thessalonians was written first. But there are other things in the letters that suggest the other way around. Honestly, it doesn't make much difference which one was first, I'm slightly leaning towards the idea that 2 Thessalonians was first, and that's why we're going to uh, work through it first, and then we'll start 1 Thessalonians a little bit later. What we do know is Paul uh, left Thessalonica in a hurry. This baby church was feeling the heat of persecution, and he's writing to encourage his church to keep trusting in Jesus, to keep living for Jesus in the midst of of suffering. And that's how 2 Thessalonians starts. Uh, What do you say to believers who are suffering for the sake of Christ? Uh, Paul tells them he's praying for them, that he's thankful they're not just surviving as Christians, but thriving. So have a listen, verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. There are three things Paul thanks God for. One, their faith is growing. Two, their love is increasing. Three, they're persevering. They're sticking with Jesus despite opposition. Why does Paul thank God for this? It makes me think of a story Jesus once told about a farmer sowing seed and the seed falls on different types of soil. One of the soils is rocky. The seed that falls on that soil starts off looking good but then dies off. Jesus says this is like people who hear the gospel, they start off excited, looking like they believe, but then troubles and persecutions come and they give up on Jesus. It's just too hard. Paul is thankful because the Thessalonians haven't given up. They've kept trusting in Jesus. They're good soil, and so he thanks God for that. He also boasts about these believers to other churches. So verse 4, Therefore among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. In the Bible, boasting is normally a bad thing. It's normally a vice. 
But this is good boasting. It's good boasting because, well, Paul's not boasting about himself. He's boasting about someone else. And really he's boasting about God, about God giving strength for this church to persevere through persecution. Good boasting is the opposite of gossip. Gossip is when you spread bad news. It's when you tell a story about someone else in order to make you look good. Making yourself look good by making other people look bad. Good boasting makes God and other people look good. It's not at all about you. And Paul has lots to boast about because the Thessalonians' faith is growing and love is increasing. Uh, This is really important. I keep coming across people who think you can be a Christian without church. They think you can have a vibrant faith in Jesus on a diet of YouTube preachers and devotional books if you're lucky. But this is not the Christian life. How does Paul know the Thessalonians are good soil? What's the evidence that they have persevering faith in Christ? It's not the stuff they watch on YouTube, is it? It's that they love one another. He says they have increasing love. And that doesn't mean a general sense of kind of warmth and goodwill towards those Christians out there. It's very easy to love people you don't know. No, this is the real hard work of loving brothers and sisters in Christ who are members of the church with you. Uh, The Bible sometimes calls the church the body of Christ. Now, I'm no doctor, but I think I know this much about how bodies work. If you cut off your finger and you separate it from your body, it's not going to last very long. It's the same in the Christian life. And this isn't about showing up at an event, but it's about investing in the body, isn't it? Partnering, loving, partnering in the community of God's people, the church, growing in deep love for one another, which is what we were thinking about, wasn't it, in last term's growth groups, reading that book, Caring for One Another. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep caring for one another, our love increasing like the church in Thessalonica. Christian, there is there is no other way God promises to keep us safe in the gospel, safe in his love, apart from being part of a local church, being part of a local, physical, regularly gathering body of believers. The Bible has no category for Christian for a Christian who's cut him or herself off from the body of Christ. True faith shows itself by increasing love for one another. Now, of course, for some believers who, due to frailty or distance, they can't gather, and that's where, that's our job then, isn't it? It's our job to go to them. We need to visit them. We need to show our increasing love for them because they are part of our body, but due to you know extreme, well, not extreme, but those circumstances can't gather with us. All right, so how do you encourage believers who are suffering? And maybe that's some of those believers who are suffering because of ill health or frailty. How do you encourage them? You pray for them. You give thanks to God for their perseverance and growth. And then you tell them about it, isn't it? That's why Paul is writing this letter to say, hey, I'm thanking God for you people, for you believers. But when Christians suffer, it can raise a question. Why is God allowing this to happen? Has God taken his hands off the wheel? Is God punishing them? What's God going to do about it? Well, Paul goes on to answer these questions. Persecution isn't evidence the Thessalonians have been abandoned by God. 
It isn't happening because they've sinned and deserve it. And they can be sure of this because God will punish those who persecute and rescue those who persevere. Verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I was a bit confused. I was a bit confused about the being counted worthy of the kingdom. That's going to be the result of their faith. That sounds a bit, doesn't it sound a bit like salvation by works? Is Paul saying, as long as you can keep trusting in Jesus through persecution, just grin and bear it, if you hold fast to Jesus for long enough, then God will reward your tenacity with salvation. Is salvation earned by persevering? No. What Paul means is true faith is persevering faith. It's like the parable of the soils. True faith goes the distance and bears fruit. And it's not the faith itself that earns salvation. Because faith can't merit salvation because faith isn't a thing. It's faith in Christ that saves. Jesus saves. And what he saves his people from is hell. Uh, Verse 9 talks about eternal destruction, being shut out from the loving presence of God forever. Uh, Recently, I've been thinking about what the Bible says about hell. There are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, One is, in a few weeks' time, the General Assembly of Australia is meeting. That's the Australia-wide Presbyterian meeting. And I'm going as one of the ministers from our presbytery. One of the things we'll be discussing, debating, is God's punishment, hell. And looking at this passage has been really helpful. It's confirmed my conviction about what the Bible says, which is also what the Westminster Confession says. And so one reason I've been thinking about this topic is an upcoming debate at the PCA Assembly. Uh, The second reason is, uh, I was recently chatting with a minister, uh, a minister from another denomination, but he's evangelical, he loves Jesus and the Bible, but he said, oh, I don't believe in eternal punishment. What he believes is when Jesus returns, and did you notice all of this is talking about when Jesus returns? Suffering as a Christian will continue until that day when Jesus is revealed. That's when we're going to know who who has persevered and who hasn't. But this fellow said, well, when Jesus returns, what's going to happen is the dead will raise to life and those who trusted in Jesus will be resurrected to eternity with Jesus and those who haven't trusted in Jesus will cease to exist. They'll be annihilated. And... Look at verse 9. You can imagine why you might think that based on verse 9. It uses this word destruction. Possibly eternal destruction could mean eternal non-existence. But that doesn't really make sense of what Paul writes. 
If God is going to punish those who are persecuting the church in Thessalonica, if the punishment they'll receive is non-existence when Jesus returns in blazing fire, why would Paul use the word eternal? If that's what he meant to say, then he'd just say, look, they're going to be punished with destruction. You wouldn't need to add the extra word eternal. Now, it is true, our language and our our brains struggle to explain and understand eternity. Malcolm mentioned that at the beginning. We, We struggle, you know, we can know God truly. We cannot know God exhaustively. We can know eternity truly. We can't know everything there is to know about eternity. Our brains, our experience cannot cope with that. It's beyond our comprehension. But surely the words eternal destruction means an ongoing experience of ruin and destruction. It's not an experience that stops, it's eternal. And that's what the Bible says. How will they know that God's judgment is right? On the last day when Jesus returns, the punishment for persecutors, for anyone who remains outside of Christ, anyone who remains an enemy of Christ, eternal destruction awaits. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Pretty heavy stuff. And you might be thinking that sounds a bit extreme. I mean, eternity is incomprehensibly long. How can verse 5 say God is is right in his judgment? And I think that judgment has two sides of it, both the judgment of saving those who are trusting in Jesus, as in the judgment that they'll have eternity with Jesus, and the judgment of punishing forever those who remain in sin. Sounds a bit extreme. And it weighs heavy on our hearts because we know at the moment some people we know and love and which side they fall on. But brothers and sisters, we need to see sin for what it is. It's not just that you're a bit nasty or a bit mean, isn't it? It's not just that you do a couple of wrong things every now and then. Sin is rebellion against God. It is treason against the Most High. It's turning your back on God's loving, kingly rule. Sin isn't a little thing. It's an offence against an infinitely beautiful and glorious God. And so God is right in his judgment. And might I add, I don't think the believers in Thessalonica, those who have been persecuted and oppressed, and do you notice Paul's promise is not that, oh, don't worry, God's going to make things excellent for you next week. No, no, there's a hint here that this persecution may well continue until the day Jesus returns. They're being persecuted and oppressed not for doing anything wrong themselves, but simply because they, they trust Jesus and they, they love him and they live for him. And you see the, the oppression and the persecution they face. I don't think they're going to think what Paul writes is over the top. They would agree God's judgment is right. God's judgment is serious stuff. We need to take it seriously. God's judgment is serious, which is why we need to pray. We need to pray that people stick with Jesus, that they'll hold fast and keep growing in faith and love and they'll continue to boldly live for Jesus. And this bold living for Jesus is what Paul picks up in his second prayer for this persecuted church. Verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he might bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this prayer. The first prayer is good. 
thanking God, that's fantastic, we need to do more of that. It's an encouragement, isn't it? An encourage, pray like that, it's an encouragement to hold on, to keep trusting in Jesus. Imagine you're in the Thessalonians' shoes, you're facing opposition for following Jesus. I reckon we might be tempted at that point to bunker down, to not do anything that might get noticed, to not take any risks for the gospel. Uh, there are some uh, Christian influencers, for want of a better term, and they love to talk about our culture. Some of them are, are ministers of churches, but others just love being on the internet. They love the sound of their voice. They seem to have a focus on negative news stories. They love to show you another story about things going downhill, things are getting harder for Christians, sin is getting worse, godliness is becoming less common. I try not to listen to them, but the bits I do hear, it seems to me their message to believers is be afraid, get scared, bunker down. It's hard to be a Christian, friends. So let's find a bomb shelter, close the door and wait for Jesus to return. That is the exact opposite of Paul's prayer here. For a church that he smashed, these guys are copying it by some furious furious mobs, aren't they? They are being smashed in persecution. And brothers and sisters, no matter how bad you think it is right now, we are not anywhere like it was in Thessalonica. These guys are doing it super tough for Jesus. But Paul's prayer is, may God empower you to live boldly for him. His prayer is God would fulfill their desires, their prayers for goodness and deeds prompted by faith. Paul doesn't pray for persecution to stop. But that persecution won't stop their gospel ambitions. What are gospel ambitions? What are your Gospel ambitions. What are your desires for goodness and deeds prompted by faith? How do you pray for Christ to be glorified in our church? Desires for goodness, that's about good deeds. Loving your neighbours and enemies. What are your desires for goodness? Maybe you have a dream to glorify God by helping people who are homeless. It's a great that we've been able to put that into action in a small way, collecting groceries for the salvos to distribute. Maybe you've got a dream to start a homework club, uh, both to help school kids with learning, but also to build relationships, to show and speak of God's love. Maybe your family's desire for goodness is to become foster carers or to care for an elderly neighbour. Maybe your desire for goodness is that religious instruction would be provided in every state primary school in our region. At the moment, less than half have any RI and quite a few only have RI a couple of times a year or it's not provided for every grade. What are your desires for goodness? The other one is works prompted by faith. Now, I don't want to separate out too much goodness and works of faith. Though, let's think of these works of faith as being more specifically gospel and disciple-making activities. What are your desires? What are your dreams for works of faith, works prompted by faith? Maybe it's that thousands of people in our region would come to know Christ. Or maybe that, that one particular family member or friend, that you'd have an opportunity to talk with him or her about your hope in Jesus that they'd say yes to your invitation to read the Bible with you or to come to church with you. Maybe your desire for works prompted by faith is that churches in Australia would be healthy, gospel-believing, Bible-teaching churches that are growing as more and more people come to faith in Christ. What are your desires for goodness and works prompted by faith? 
Do you pray God will bring them to fruition? Have you ever asked someone else, maybe your growth group or our church as a whole, to pray for them? What I love about Paul's prayer is in the midst of persecution and suffering, when the temptation for us is to be inward looking, to give up hope, to be anxious and afraid, he wants Christians to keep dreaming gospel dreams, to pray faith-prompted prayers, to have God-shaped desires and to be praying that they'll happen. It can be hard to know what to say to someone who's suffering. It can be hard to know what to pray for someone who's suffering. But we've got a great example here. Give thanks to God that they're being held fast by Jesus, that they're persevering, and that they're even growing in faith and love. Often God uses hard times to grow us, doesn't he? And then pray for their gospel-shaped desires to be fulfilled. And then... Tell them that's what you're praying for them. And let's do that now. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you give faith in Jesus, that you raise sinners from spiritual death, raising us to life in him. We thank you for preserving faith in Jesus through suffering. As we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, both in this church and in others, we know many of them have suffered and you have given them strength to endure. And not just to hold on, but to grow in faith and increase in love. Please be doing that in us. Grow us in faith. Increase our love for one another. And Lord God, we ask you'd grow us in our desires for goodness and for works prompted by faith. And we ask you'd answer those prayers and fulfill those desires. Might we see things happen in our church, in our community, that bring great glory to Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.